When I was around 17 years old, I got my first real job. It was a desk job, and it was at a publishing company doing typesetting and page layout for Ivy League books, Ivy League textbooks. And I was by far the youngest person in my entire department. And I had just had the most transformational experience of my entire life. I had come to faith through the ministry of a Pentecostal congregation, and my heart was renewed, and my worldview was renewed, and everything was new to me, very excited. And I quickly discovered that I had this voracious appetite for learning, especially about theology, philosophy, apologetics. Apologetics means defense of the faith. And I was very interested in learning all that I could about Christianity, world religions, church history, the Bible, etc. So I read all those books. Do you remember those books like Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Read all of those books. I read uh, More Than a Carpenter. I was very big into proof. I wanted to prove a lot of things. And um, most of my coworkers were not professing Christians. Uh, they were smart people, but a lot of them were you know, professional, devout skeptics. Uh, one of my coworkers was an editor. He had a bust of Socrates on his desk. And he's very proud of the fact that he was skeptical of everything. And uh, I was equally enthusiastic about sharing the gospel. So it was quite a mix, quite a combo. Uh, it's not really native to my personality to turn down a good debate. And so you can imagine this made for some interesting conversations uh, at work. And uh, I constantly used to try to convert my coworkers. That was like my mission. Uh, and at that time in my life, my, my zeal for evangelism wasn't tempered by very much wisdom at all. So I remember uh, this moment when I was very interested in this coworker of mine, uh, a sweet older woman. Uh, I was very interested in her experience with Jesus. Was she a Christian? You know, what, what, what kind of church background did she have? Very interested. So I struck up a conversation with her about religion. And um, she very kindly and very condescendingly said to me, there are two things that you really shouldn't discuss in polite company, religion and politics. And that is kind of, I mean, it's hard to believe, but that's kind of the sentiment that a lot of people have, even to this day. And the reason why I think that's kind of hard to believe is because now we have broadband internet pretty much available everywhere, right? This is the era of uh, social media. This is the era of Wi-Fi and coffee shops around the world. And uh, the culture around us has certainly shifted when it comes to the discussion of religion and politics. Now, that feels like it's the background noise of our entire lives. Can't turn on the radio. You can't turn on the television. You certainly can't check social media. And news headlines are filled with the discussion of religion and politics. But this shift hasn't made the discussion any better. If anything, it's made it worse. It's made it more vitriolic, more entrenched, more polarizing. But certainly I'm not talking about followers of Jesus, right? That was a laugh line for sure. Yeah. When I was uh, on staff at a church in LA, uh, this was shortly after the 2016 election, I preached a Palm Sunday sermon where I was contrasting Jesus riding a lowly donkey and the Roman practice of a triumph in which the conquering general would ride a, a huge white stallion 
And I was contrasting these two, and I was talking about winning, this culture of winning, and I used the voice completely involuntarily. I used the voice, so much winning, and I didn't even realize I did it. I didn't even, I, I didn't realize I did it until people laughed, and then I was like, oh, crap. And uh, I got an earful from the senior pastor later on because he didn't want the conservatives to leave the church over that. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, it's, gotten, it's gotten that bad. It's gotten so bad that there was a church in Dallas, Texas, that wrote a song entitled Make America Great Again. They sung it in their worship service, and then they added it to the CCLI worship song database. That's, that's, that's a real thing that happened. Um, it doesn't seem like we're even able to talk about politics in the church in a way that is rooted in the life of Jesus. It's rooted in the kingdom of God that Jesus talked about. I, it feels like gone are the days when our faith informed our politics. It seems like now our politics informs our faith. And that's why in this series, where we're focusing on the third mission priority, to purposefully seek the renewal of our city, in a series that we've named Love in Public, based on that quote, Justice is what love looks like in public, by Dr. Cornell West. In this series, I wanted to devote at least one sermon to the topic of politics. And I know that this topic is vast, complex. I know that it's considered controversial. If you know me, I'm not one to shy away from controversy. And, uh, but I'm not interested in being comprehensive. And I'm not interested in being controversial. I, I'm, I'm not interested in relitigating the 2016 election or the 2018 election. I'm not interested in forecasting the 2020 election. I'm really not interested in voting at all. I'm not, I'm not interested in talking about partisan politics. My goals this morning are really narrow. I'm going to give them to you. Here's my goals. I want to disabuse us of the way politics gets used and misused and misunderstood in America, especially by Christians. That's my first goal. I want to present a picture of how Jesus' life and ministry in the Gospels was inherently political. And then finally, my third goal is to draw some applications from that for Jesus' disciples, for us for Roots Covenant Church. How should we then engage politically? And I've entitled this message, The Politics of Jesus. But before we get into our first uh, bunch of scriptures, would you join me in prayer for the illumination of the Holy Spirit? Lord Jesus, you are the king. You are the king of God's kingdom to whom we give our full allegiance. You are the humble king, the one who models for us servant leadership and empowers us by your Holy Spirit to love others with your love. This morning, as we look into the scriptures, we ask for your spirit to shine a light on how you would have us engage politically. Open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts and of our minds, to see how you've called us to engage in the world around us, and may we hear your word loud and clear. May we be moved by your spirit, not only to hear, but to act. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. In the name of the Father, 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at a few passages from the Gospels. But before we do that, we need to talk about this word, politics. Because in our culture today, the broader dominant culture, this word alone has developed some negative connotations. When people uh, use this word today, oftentimes they're implying that someone's being divisive. Someone's being deceptive, hypocritical. People say, don't politicize that thing. Meaning, don't make it a weapon to use against another group. But really, the reality is that politics doesn't necessarily mean divisive or deceptive or hypocritical. That's, that's just bad politics. And not all politics is bad politics. Politics in itself is just the way people live together in a society. That's all politics is. It's the ordering or the organization of civic life. And it's important to remember that the organization of people in a society is inherent to shalom. Remember shalom? Shalom is that, that concept that we keep bringing up throughout this series. It's God's dream for the world, right? It's right relatedness between people. It's harmony. It's wholeness. And it's inherently political. Because it has to do with Society has to do with relationships. You can't have shalom without some politics. And that's important to keep in, keep in mind. Shalom is a social vision. In fact, going way back, you remember that series that we did on culture called Swimming Lessons? We talked about the different ways that God has called us to participate in culture, how we're influenced by culture, how culture's like the water that we swim in, like, like fish in water, right? Well, during that series, we talked about the cultural mandate. That's found in Genesis. And the cultural ma mandate says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Now, I like that translation from the NLT, the, the New Living Translation. I like the way that they render that verb. Most of the other translations, modern translations, render that verb, subdue it. But I don't like that, because I feel like that has a connotation of dominance. I like govern it. Govern the world. Because I think govern the world means it, it implies responsibility. It implies stewardship. The cultural mandate shows us that God has commissioned human beings to establish a social order of love, one that reflects God's very nature. The entire biblical na narrative actually has a contrast in it. And the contrast is between God's shalom, God's governance of shalom and love, and the corrupt and dehumanizing social order that the scriptures call Babylon. Empires that dehumanize and corrupt. This goes all the way back to the Tower of Babylon that we often call the Tower of Babel. But it's the Tower of Babylon. And it goes all the way to Revelation to the establishment of the New Jerusalem. This is the contrast that the entire scriptures paint. The Bible presents human beings with these two visions of ordering society, ordering people. And it's into this precise context, into that contrast that Jesus steps in the beginning of the New Testament. The beginning of the New Testament starts with the four Gospels. You guys know the four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three, the first three Gospels are what's called synoptic Gospels. Okay? Just a wordy word that means 
They parallel one another. They're similar to one another. John's gospel is a little bit different. In each one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus begins his ministry with the announcement of what he calls the kingdom of God. Matthew 4.23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among them. New Testament starts out with Matthew's gospel. And Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry in this way. That he declared the kingdom of God and then he demonstrated the kingdom of God. The demonstration was wholeness, physical well-being. That's part of God's vision for social uh, shalom. Then Mark says it this way in Mark 1, 14 and 15. When John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Mark's gospel jumps right into the action. Right at the beginning, Jesus saying, repent, believe the good news. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, side note, recall that I've said this before and I'll probably keep saying this. Repentance is not a feeling of remorse. Repentance is a change in your life's trajectory. So Jesus wasn't saying, feel bad for your sins. He was saying, it's time to turn your life around. Okay, so repent, believe the kingdom of God, believe in the good news. Luke says it this way in 443. Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to those towns also, because that is why I was sent. So Luke's gospel adds this element of this was Jesus' mission. This is why Jesus was here, to proclaim and and demonstrate the kingdom of God. Even John's gospel, which, which I said follows a different pattern from the other three, even John's gospel has a discussion of the kingdom of God right at the beginning. Jesus is talking to uh, Nicodemus, I believe. Is that right? Chapter 3? Yes. And he says, Verily, very truly I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. So, here's the point. All four of the Gospels begin with the center of Jesus' ministry, his teaching, his mission, the kingdom of God. And what we have to keep in mind is that the kingdom of God is a social vision. It is a political vision. Jesus even taught his disciples to pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what's happened for so many of us is that we have been conditioned to spiritualize the kingdom of God. We've been conditioned to think of the kingdom of God as it only applies to one part of our lives. The spiritual part of our lives, right? And this shift in our thinking has gone mostly unnoticed. It's it's very subtle. But it goes way back. The entire Western world has been transformed by the European Enlightenment. This is a little bit of a history lesson. Hang with me. European Enlightenment was this scientific, rationalistic shift that was so powerful it, it, it became normal. It became normalized. 
And it separated, it compartmentalized religion, that's a new category, religion from politics. You have religion over here, politics over here. And that, that compartmentalization now feels very normal to us. We're like water, and it's like, it's like, we're like fish, and it's like the water we swim in. That's normal. But the New Testament, it's important to keep in mind that Jesus and the authors of the New Testament, they did not think this way. For 1,500 years, no one thought this way. This is a new development in history. The kingdom of God was viewed as something that encompassed every aspect of our lives. Not just the religious or spiritual part of our lives, but our political lives too. Our social lives too. Here's the dirty little secret. The dirty little secret is that when you divorce religion from politics, you domesticate faith. Faith really gets the teeth taken out of it. And now, it's not our faith that primarily governs our lives. It's primarily politics. Politics gets to dictate the trajectory of your life. Faith is no longer a disruptive force in the world. Now it's, it's relativized. It's relegated to Sunday mornings or Friday night. Religion stays in its nice, neat compartment and, religion, and politics gets to rule the world. But the kingdom of God that Jesus preached does not fit into those boxes. It refuses to stay in its place. It is a disruptive force. The kingdom of God that Jesus preaches isn't confined to one ethnicity or one land. Jesus sent out his disciples into the whole world. So the kingdom of God is not bound by geographical borders. It's not bound by uh, ethnicity or culture. It is unleashed in the world. But way too many churches in the United States have thought about the kingdom of God in the spiritualized way. They've, they've, they've adopted and accepted that compartmentalization. And what it's led to is that now a lot of people think the entire gospel is about going to heaven when you die. That's the gospel. Jesus died for you so that when you die, you can fly out of here and get off this rock and go to the cloudy place with the harps and the fat babies. Right? That's what a lot of people think. A lot of people think that the gospel is about evacuation. The rapture. We're going to get off this planet. But Jesus' mission and his vision of the world was inherently about establishing a social order here on earth. About a new way of being human. A new creation. A new heavens and a new earth. Jesus' mission was political. He even said that at the center of the law was loving God and loving neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself. How can you love your neighbor as yourself without a society to do that in? You don't have neighbors if you don't have a neighborhood, right? And where do neighborhoods belong? In cities, towns. Countries, nations. Think 
about this. If we allow the dominant culture to compartmentalize religion and politics, and if we allow that to be our worldview, our framework, then when society caters to you and me, when it privileges you and me, when it, when it gives, when it tailors itself to our way of doing things, why would we want anything to change? We wouldn't, would we? We would just like the status quo to remain the same. When my faith is compartmentalized from my politics, it doesn't endanger my life. It doesn't make it, it, doesn't make it uh, disruptive. And then why would I want anything to change? When I'm on the receiving end of all the blessings of politics. When I'm the privileged few. When I'm the elite. And that's why it's important for us to see Jesus' politics. Jesus' politics demonstrate for us through his life that he viewed things from a different lens, a different worldview. I was curious, and so I went through the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I went passage by passage. I did a little bit of an analysis, and I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to find out, what does Jesus spend the bulk of his time doing? And what do each author, each gospel what does it show Jesus doing in, in these passages? And what I found was that Jesus spends a lot of time demonstrating love in public. Which, if you remember our definition of justice, justice is what love looks like in public. So, you could say Jesus spends a lot of his time in the Gospels doing justice. Here's some examples. Jesus spends a lot of time in the Gospels feeding the poor, feeding the hungry. He multiplies food for those who don't have it multiple times throughout the Gospels. Jesus spends a lot of his time formally including people who have been formally excluded from community. These folks, because of their sins, they are on the outside looking in. Jesus spends a lot of his time finding those people and including them on the inside. Jesus spends a lot of his time healing people that are physically afflicted by diseases. Making them whole again. Jesus spends a lot of his time liberating those who are oppressed. Not just spiritually oppressed, although that's a big part of it, but also people who have been, been preyed upon by the powers that be. Jesus spends a lot of his time recognizing the faith of people who are otherwise overlooked or unlikely to be models of faith. Remember when he pointed out the faith of the widow? Look at her faith. She gave more than everyone. People would have overlooked her. But Jesus spent time seeing the people on the margins and pointing out their faith. Now, notice that I'm not including all the times that Jesus teaches us his politics and commands us to love others the way that he loves. I'm just talking about the times when he does it himself. When he goes around demonstrating it, modeling it. And that makes up 16% of Matthew, 20% of Luke, and 26% of Mark. Just Jesus doing justice. 
going around demonstrating love in public. And what he's doing is he's demonstrating his politics. These are my politics. In my kingdom, there's enough food for everyone. In my kingdom, there's enough loving community for everyone. In my kingdom, there's wholeness and physical well-being for everyone. In my kingdom, there's freedom from domination for everyone. In my kingdom, there's recognition of the gifts and the callings that everyone has. Jesus' politics are the very same politics that he commands and models for his disciples to follow in his footsteps. To do the things that he was doing. To continue loving people the way that he loved them. Here's what he said. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all ethnos, of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That doesn't just mean doctrines. That means everything I've been doing, you do it too. You're my disciples. You're my apprentices. You saw me going around doing justice, loving people in public. You go around doing justice, loving people in public. Jesus commanded his disciples to form disciples. Those disciples formed Jesus communities. That's what I call them, Jesus communities. And then those Jesus communities formed more Jesus disciples. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here. This means that the politics of Jesus aren't individualistic. It's not like each one of us goes out and tries to do this on our own. It means we gather together as Jesus communities and we have a collective witness. Together we are to love people in public. Together we are to do justice as a Jesus community. And this is precisely what we see in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is like a continuation of the Gospels. Jesus began his ministry and then he conferred his kingdom upon the apostles. And the apostles carried out that that example. They continued to live out the politics of Jesus. Paul, for example, goes around the entire Mediterranean region and he makes many Jesus communities. And he proclaims the kingdom of God in those cities. Cities like Athens. Cities like Thessalonica. Cities like Corinth. Corinth. And did you know that they tried to kill him? (laughs) Did you know that when he went proclaiming the kingdom of God, they didn't go, oh, that's cute. He believes that people go to heaven when they die. Aww. And there's harps there. There's fat babies. It's cute. No. They tried to execute him multiple times. He was stoned. Stoned multiple times. Here's what happened in Thessalonica. When Paul and his companions had passed through, I'm going to say Amphipolis? Sure. And Apollyana, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up 
some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But they did not find them. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. One translation says, have turned the world upside down. I love that translation. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Tell me that's not a political message. Tell me that the kingdom of God is about going to heaven when you die. Do you think city officials are thrown into turmoil because some people believe they're going to go to the the cloudy place with harps and fat babies when they die? No. They were defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's a different king, Jesus. Now what some people hear when they hear this is they hear, okay, so then that means we've got to start a political party. <laughs> the, the Christian political party, right? That's not how the politics of Jesus work. The politics of Jesus aren't conservative or progressive or centrist, moderates. Jesus isn't a Republican. Jesus isn't a Democrat, a capitalist, a socialist. Jesus is not even an anarchist, which is probably the closest one. <laughs> the politics of Jesus don't exist on our left-right spectrums. We've got these left-right spectrums in the Western world. Jesus' politics don't exist on our spectrums. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world like it's a kingdom from another world entirely. It's so other. Jesus is the king of a kingdom that has no borders. No guns. No tanks. No bombs. No billionaires. No death. No sickness. No aliens. No deplorables. Everyone in Jesus' kingdom belongs. Everyone in Jesus' kingdom has a purpose. Everyone in Jesus' kingdom is called and gifted and is family. But I'll tell you what I've, the mistake I've made when it comes to politics. And this is a bit of a confession. Uh, I'm ashamed that it took me so long to realize this. But one of the things I've done when it comes to trying to live out the politics of Jesus is I have interpreted it as, well, then, if God's kingdom is other, then I should opt out of all politics here on earth. Dirty, nasty, ugly politics. Right? I have thought that the way I should translate the politics of Jesus into 21st century America is to not vote, not educate myself about the policies that politicians propose and to not advocate for a particular way forward. Just opt out. But here's what I realized way too slowly, and this is what I'm ashamed of. I realized that that's a lot easier for me to do than it is for a lot of other people. I realized that regardless of who the mayor is, or who the police chief is, or who the governor is, or the congressperson, or even the president, my life pretty much stays the same. 
I'm ashamed to say that I didn't realize how, how much of a privileged position that was. That I could just opt out of politics. Doesn't affect me. I didn't realize that because I'm not a woman, all these laws that have to do with women's rights, I don't have to care about those. I have that privilege. And because I'm not an immigrant, all those laws that have to do with immigration, I don't have to care about those. Doesn't affect me. I could opt out of that. Because I'm not a member of the LGBTQ community, I'm not impacted by laws that discriminate against them. Doesn't affect me. Because I'm not a Muslim, I don't fear being persecuted or being stereotyped. Because I'm not a disabled person, I don't care if there's ramps. Those laws don't affect me. In each of these ways, I occupy the most privileged position in society. And I could pretty much carry on as usual, regardless of who's in power. But the politics of Jesus challenge me. They challenge me in a very particular way. To see the world through the eyes of the other. Like Jesus did. To be searching for those on the margins who are impacted by the politics of this world. And to participate in creating a new world. A better world. As a Jesus disciple, the politics of Jesus teach me not to think as an individual, but to think about solidarity. To think about myself as a part of, first of all, the body of Christ. The politics of Jesus teach me that I'm to submit myself to this body right here. To you. That I'm not to think about my own needs, but I'm to think about our needs. This church, right here. There are women in this church. So when I think about politics, I think about how are my sisters impacted by that? And if my sisters are impacted by that, I'm impacted by that. There are immigrants in this church. So when I think about policies that have to do with immigration, I think, how are my sisters and brothers impacted by that who are immigrants? You see how that works? The body of Christ teaches me to live out the politics of Jesus in a non-selfish way. It teaches me to be part of a society of shalom, an alternative to the politics of the world. And then, the secondly, the politics of Jesus teach me to think about the common good. The common good. To see those who are marginalized in society by the powers that be. Those who are feared. Those who are hated. Those who are under-resourced. Those who are excluded. Those who are afflicted. And those who are oppressed. And it teaches me to do everything in my power to be a part of a new way forward, a better way forward. It doesn't teach me to opt out of politics. It teaches me to engage very specifically. That's how I engage in politics, because of Jesus. Is I'm looking to the margins. Who is being oppressed? Who is being mistreated? And those are the folks that I'm in solidarity with. Because of Jesus. 
The politics of Jesus teach me and teach us, I believe, to be a people for the sake of others, not for our own sake. Not to just think about what benefits me in society, but to think about what benefits the most people. What benefits the people who get left behind, who fall through the cracks? I think this is actually critical. This point right here is that the politics of Jesus are all about the cross. Jesus was the ultimate privileged person. Jesus is all-powerful. Came from heaven. He occupied the, the, the highest place, right? Here's how Paul put it to the, to the Philippians. Paul said that if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same politics as, as Jesus did. Who, bear, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. Did not consider his privilege of being divine. Something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What that says to me is that the politics of Jesus are a politics of humility. A politics of putting others first. Of thinking about the interests of others. First here, in this local expression of the body of Christ. But then also in society. Broadly. The politics of Jesus are cruciform. They are cross-shaped. As Jesus put aside his privileges and humbled himself and served others, so are, to we, are we too. So like I said, I'm not interested in telling you how to vote. I'm not interested in telling you what political party to belong to. I'm not interested in telling you what policies in particular you should support. But I think that as your pastor, it's my job, it's my, it's my duty to say, we are called, I am called, you are called, to embody the politics of Jesus. To love people in public. To do justice. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, when we come to the scriptures and we, and we see you looking around at those in your world, looking around at those in Judea and Galilee 
in Samaria, in towns and, and villages, and, and seeing women, seeing foreigners, seeing the afflicted, the sick, the poor. We see your heart. We see your love. We see your vision of the world, your social vision. That you want all those who have been marginalized to be brought back in. You leave the 99 for the one. You are the good shepherd. And when we see you, when we see your politics, we are convicted because we live in a we live in an age and we live in a place where politics is so divisive, so polarizing, where everyone lines up on, on teams. We ask for your Holy Spirit to invade our hearts, to invade our fellowship, to invade this city and this world, and to bring about a new world, a society of shalom. Make it start here, Lord, at Roots Covenant Church. May we be a small glimpse of that future where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more death. May we be a small glimpse of shalom and may that, that shalom spill out of us into our neighborhoods, into our cities, and into this world. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to be with us, in us, through us, and may we embody your love. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.